Please join me in opening your Bibles to James chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, it is a delight to consider, to ponder, to meditate, to proclaim in our hearts the truth that you sovereignly, lovingly, deliberately saved us. Thank you. Help us now as we consider your word that we would be led by your spirit and that we would submit to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Our country is experiencing a good deal of turmoil. We're all aware whether that would be political, economic, or social, whether we're talking about systemic issues or individual actions, we know there is a divide, that there is unrest, and that there is discomfort among us. I am not, as an individual, or as a leader of this church, political in my pursuits, and my thoughts, and my actions. It is not my ministry to analyze or interpret the society that we live in or to call you to a movement of some sort. That is not my job and it is not my ministry. What I do believe that God has called me to do is to shepherd you with His Word in light of our circumstances to shepherd you with His Word in light of our circumstances. What is certain is that God has called us to be salt and light in this world. You can view the salt concept from two different perspectives, whether you want to talk about it, the fact that we are to be a preservative of true righteousness and peace in this age of increasing wickedness, Or, if you want to look at it in the light of that we are to be producing a seasoning of righteousness and peace, or uh, soliciting a thirst for righteousness and peace among this age, these things are certain that God has called us to preserve and to call people toward Himself through the Gospel. A Gospel that is both spoken with our words With our fingers, however you want to get that gospel message out, it's spoken and it's lived. It's demonstrated. We need to do both the preaching and the living of the gospel uh, to be as effective as we ought to be. As a light, we are to be pointing people to the only solution to their deepest needs, and that we know is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself where our country is battling in this day is a matter that we must ensure is not demonstrated among us. Where our country is battling, whether that be prejudice, racism, whatever you want to call it, whatever the particular catchphrase is at the time, we have to ensure that that is not present in us and among us, 
Of course, it's easy to quickly dismiss our own prejudices. It is easy to point to some reason why we are not those who show partiality or personal favoritism. So, for the sake of allowing God to direct our thinking and our spirits in this, we want to let God's Word direct us. And so we're going to look at James chapter 2, the first half of the chapter this morning. Take a look with me. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. We'll read down through verse 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whatever or whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, of course, we can't get into all of the glorious things that this text says. We're going to look first at the flow of the passage. We'll work through the text and and understand the flow of it. And then, after that, we'll go back and we're going to make some observations, four observations, about the Christian or the church, and discrimination. We want to see what God's Word has to say to us about us. It's very easy for you and for me to think, this is that person's problem. This is the world's problem. Oh, that person over there has this issue. It is much harder for us to say, the problem resides right here. And God's Word doesn't leave us comfortable to just assume that the problem lies out there, but instead intrudes into our lives and says, there's something that needs to be rooted out right here, in this man. There's something that needs to be rooted out right there, in that man, 
or that woman, or that child. God doesn't leave us alone and just say, oh, no, I don't have this problem. No, well, let's, let's see, what does God's Word say? What does the Spirit of God say? And it is your responsibility, as it is mine, to truly surrender our hearts and minds to the Lord so that the Gospel will truly have transformed us not only at the moment of our salvation, but each day after our salvation. God's Gospel is transforming us right now. And so let us allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God through the Gospel of God to transform us even in these areas where we might think, I have no issue with that. That's not my problem. I have, I have a problem with eating too much or I have a problem with liking cars too much. Notice how I always try to bring up things that are right here rather than pointing out things I know about you. I know my sin or potential areas of sin. I know areas of temptation for me. You need to know areas of temptation for you. But just because you might have some glaring ones that pop out doesn't mean there aren't other ones that God wants to root out of you and me as well. All right, so let's consider the flow of the text. Verse 1 is the headliner. Verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The New American Standard Bible is helpful in giving us a more literal reading, which reads this way. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now, I'm probably going to repeat this later on in our time together, but you really could read this. My brethren, stop holding your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. The way that this is constructed in the Greek is actually assuming that this activity is taking place. He's telling you to stop doing this. Not like in this theoretical world that maybe someone somewhere might have done this. He tells us, you stop this and you stop this now. This is the headliner of the text. In verses 2 and 3, he gives an illustration of personal favoritism. And of course, we're very familiar with that illustration. We don't have to reread it. The, the rich man comes in and, and you, you look upon him. It's very interesting. Epi blepo. I love the word blepo. Blepo means to look. Epi, upon. You look upon him. It's like you see someone, they, as soon as they walk in the door, they catch your eye. Look, at, they have on just the right clothing. They're dressed just the right way. They, their hair is just the right way. They probably drove in in just the right car. You, kind of, you saw it. You looked upon them and you say, that's one of those people we, we want to have here. Let's, let's make sure they feel comfortable. We're going to set aside a, a great seat for them. We want to make sure that we, we've rolled out the carpet, the red carpet for them. We really, really care. And then someone else comes in, and maybe they have a backpack on, so you're automatically suspicious. What do they have in that backpack? What are they going to do with what's in that backpack? You've got all these problems, right? And there's not, no, no, nothing wrong with having a security mindset. Don't, don't misre- misunderstand what I'm saying here. They come in with a backpack. They, they don't, their hair is on, you know, not really done. Their clothes aren't that great. And you think, all right, what are we going to do with this one? The one you look upon, the other you just say, Something dismissive. Yeah, find a seat over there somewhere. Now, maybe this isn't a thing for you because you don't really have anything to do with, with seating. 
uh, in the church or anything like this. Um, but you can see where maybe someone who looks like you, dresses like you, has similar interests to you, goes to the same clubs that you go to. I don't know if you go to like golf clubs or whatever. They, they, they dress uh, or shop in all the same stores that you do. They have all the same flavors of foods that they like that you do. It's like, oh, I can really chum around with that one. They're just like me. Well, if, if that's the way that works, like you're going to have a really boring place where everyone likes all the same things all the time. It's, yeah. So you get all these things that, that come into our minds that, that, okay, this one's important and that one over there is not important. And so we treat them accordingly. So he uses that type of an illustration to illustrate the stop, stop, holding your faith in the glorious Lord with personal favoritism. Why would you let the most glorious thing in your whole life be undercut by your spirit towards someone that acts differently, they talk differently, they do differently than you do. That's, that's, that's personal favoritism. He uses that as an illustration. Verse 4, he calls it sin. He says, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So now you can tell in verse 4 that he's saying this is going on, right? Have you not then? Uh, the word then isn't there in the Greek. Is have you not made distinctions is really how it should r- literally read. And the word made dis- distinctions is the word for discrimination. Isn't it an interesting thing? Have you not made discriminations among yourselves? The word there is diakrino. Dia, through. Crino, judge. To judge through. Have you not judged one another? Have you not judged thoroughly one another just by what you see on the outside? And he says, this is sin. He confirms that by saying, have you not become judges with evil thoughts? I don't think any of us think that evil thoughts are... That's a compliment, right? Have you not become... Judges with evil thoughts. Why? Just because you distinguish between someone who has something to offer you and someone you don't think does. You, you see where the root of this is? What am I going to get out of this person? Oh, I know. This person is so super intellectually smart. If we could just get them on our side, they'll make a great impact. So now we're talking about intellectual discrimination. Oh, this person is really wealthy. If we get them on our side, we'll be funded. Now we have economic discrimination. Oh, if, if, if we can get this kind of a person, they, they are emotionally just like me, and, and I need that emotion all around me. Now we are emotionally discriminating. You see, it doesn't have to be a race that we're talking about. It's, it's all the spectrum of differences that, that are in a group of people. What's glorious, one of the things that I love is there are so many weird people in this place. (laughs) Admit it, you're weird. I know I'm weird. And you know I'm weird. None of us are trying to hide it. We come here, I hope, and we are who we are. That doesn't mean we celebrate our sin. Well, that's just the way I am. No, I'm not talking about that kind of we are who we are. 
We're not putting on a face mask. Oh, wait a second. The government's making us put on face masks. You know what I mean. We're not putting on the hypocritical face mask where we're pretending to be something that we are not. We're weird. And you know, that's great. God has chosen so many different types of people. Intellectually different. Emotionally different. Economically different. Racially different. And this is the glory of the Gospel. This makes us celebrate. It makes our hearts sing. I can't wait until that day when this nonsense that we deal with every day is over. We stand before the throne of Jesus Christ and we glory. We glory in the Gospel and what He's done. All of this other stuff will be gone. In the meantime, we struggle sometimes because that person's weirder than I am. So they can go and stay over there. I'll stay with this group of weirdos that I like a little bit more. All of this. Don't tell me none of this applies to you. Don't tell me you've never struggled with someone's weirdness that was different than your weirdness. God doesn't let us feel comfortable. He, he doesn't want us to be comfortable discriminating against anyone in this way. Have, have we been clear to this point? I trust we have. Verses 5-7 through seven gives us how illogical, he tells us how illogical this discrimination is. Now, based upon the illustration he gave us, the rich and the poor. The rich and the poor. He talks about this a lot in this letter. We only have time to try to dive into this one. So he's now going to tell us how illogical it is for the people of the church to discriminate against the poor people and for the rich people. Verses 5-7, through seven, look what he says. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which He has promised to those who love Him. But you have dishonored the poor man. And are not the rich ones those who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? This, this is, he's telling us how illogical this is. It, it was happening in his day. He says, stop holding. Stop holding the faith of your glorious Lord with personal favoritism. Verse 4, have you not made discriminations or distinctions? Verse 5, it's illogical because the ones you are discriminating against, the poor, the poor believers, are eternally rich. They're eternally rich. And they're part of an eternal kingdom. Why would you discriminate against someone who's actually rich and who's part of the kingdom that you say you live for? Those are the people that should be elevated and embraced and loved and shared with. He goes on a little bit further in verse 6. While you dishonor the poor, you're honoring someone else. What are these people like? What are these people like that you're honoring instead of the poor? Now, now when I say poor, it's not like poor generic. This is poor believers, right? They're rich in faith. They're dishonor you're dishonoring the poor and you're honoring the rich. What are these rich people like? 
Don't they lord over you in verse 6? Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you? The word there is kata dunestuo. He's a tough one. Can I have it? I think it's underlined, right? And you see the words that are underlined, the, the part, the letters that are underlined. Can you hear dynasty there? Dynasty. Are not the rich the ones that are trying to form a dynasty over you? They're ruling over you. They're trying to oppress you. Why? Why is it that you want to elevate them when they're trying to rule over you? Then he goes on and he takes it to the next step. Aren't they the ones dragging you to court? Aren't they the ones that are um, trying to take advantage of you? They're using the legal system to, to get what little you have to increase their coffers? Isn't there something wrong with this that you see a rich person and think, ooh, I need to get him on my side? He doesn't care about you. He cares about himself. What's wrong with you? And then it gets worse when you get to verse 7. Don't they blaspheme the honorable name of your Savior? Verse 7. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Your salvation is based upon the glorious life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They could care less about Him, and yet you want to elevate them because they have some bucks? What's wrong with you? This is illogical. That's what James says. And that, that means that's what God says. Right? Because God, the Spirit, inspired this. Alright, let's move on a little bit for, further. Verses 8-11. through 11, The flow of the text. He's already told us how illogical their actions are. Now he's going to describe how immoral they are. Illogical actions. Now he tells them that their actions are immoral. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But... If you show partiality, stop right there. At verse 1 he said, stop showing partiality. Verse 4 he said, have you not made discriminations? Have you not become judges with evil thoughts? So when he gets to verse 9, he says, if you show partiality, he's, he's really just kind of playing it light. He already told them that they're doing this. So you could, logically, not linguistically, you could say, but when you show partiality, you are committing sin, number one, and secondly, are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So so if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, you sin, right? And you're convicted of the law as a transgressor. Is that right? So positively, in verse 8, the kingdom law is to love your neighbor That's all of them. Negatively, verse 9, discrimination is not loving, therefore it's a violation of the law of the kingdom to which you've been called. Verses 10 and 11, it's not a small thing. It's not a small thing. Instead, it brings an exhaustive failure. An exhaustive failure. Now, I have enough problem with the actual violations that I commit against the law of the Lord. Never mind throwing on, well, you're guilty of all of them. 
So it's exhaustive. It's, it's, it's kind of an overwhelming debt, right? The burden just keeps piling on and piling on and piling on. Verses 11, uh, 12 and 13, James calls the church to action. Verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He's calling the church to action. Now, I, I, I'm doing this for your benefit. So, for those of you that hate it when I bring up Greek, you have to just bear with it, okay? Um, here's a Greek phrase that starts verse 12. Hautos, laleta, kai, hautos, poeta. The reason I wanted you to see that is the repetition and the parallelism. The repetition. Hautas. You see that? It looks like a, an O-U-T with a W-S. I know it looks like something different than hautas, but that's how you say it in Greek. That repetition of hautas, the word hautas means after this manner or on this wise or so. And the reason I wanted to point that out to you is not a mistake that our ESV translators use the word so twice in their translation. So speak and so act. Lalete, that's speak. Speak in regard to this in light of all these things. And so poeta, that is to act in light of these things. Speak in light of this and act in light of this. In light of what? Don't hold the faith of our glorious Lord in a manner that is showing personal favoritism. Here's the illustration, verses 2 and 3. Here's the reason it's such a problem, verse 4. It's sin, verses 5, 6, and 7. It's illogical to do this, verses 8, 9, uh, eight, nine and 10. It is immoral to do that. I think I missed a verse, verse 11 as well. It's immoral to do that. So, in light of this reality... Talk in light of this and act. Do. 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 That sounds like a, a James kind of word, doesn't it? Oh, we hear the word. We see our sin. But do we just walk away from seeing our sin and hearing the word and just go away the same way we came in? That should not be, my, my brothers. It should not be. When we see our sin, it's supposed to bring us to repentance. That we might leave a different way and do according to what God has called us to do. In word and deed, you and I must live in light of this reality. You are called by the honorable name of Jesus Christ your Savior. He is the Lord of glory. He has called people like you and like me to be rich in faith and heirs of His kingdom. He has issued a royal decree for the inhabitants of His kingdom. Love your neighbor as yourself. To violate this is sin. Live in light of this reality. And if you're thinking, yeah, I do this. I want to warn you and me 
This is exactly what the rich young ruler said when Jesus told him to love his neighbor as himself. Oh, I've done all of this since my youth. And, and Jesus said, let's test this theory. I want to test your assertion. You asserted you've been loving your neighbor as yourself since your youth. You know how you can really know whether you love your neighbor as yourself? Take everything you own, sell it, and give it to him because you love him just as much as you love yourself. Just share it all. Share every dime you have. Do you really love your neighbor as yourself? That's a little discouraging, isn't it? (laughs) Loving people the way that God has called us to love them requires continual submission to God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God enables you and me to love in deed And in truth. Isn't that what the Apostle John said in 1 John 3? Don't just love in in word and in tongue. Love in deed and in truth. The Spirit of God can enable that. Interestingly, in the very next section in James, which we are not studying this morning, James will move from discrimination, caring for the rich and disinterest in the poor, to a type of faith that saves. A living faith. And one of the illustrations he uses to drive the point home is how we treat poor or needy people. Remember this? Be warmed and filled without giving them the things that are needful for the body. So he's, he's applying then in the next section some of the truths in the section we're talking about. It's pretty interesting. You and I have the call upon our lives to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the royal law. It's the law of the kingdom. It's the law, the supreme law, of our sovereign king. Love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, uh, after having worked our way through, um, somewhat quickly through the flow of the passage, I want for us to come back through and just make some, some observations. I think they're pretty easy observations to make. And I hope they will be helpful for each one of us. Number one, partiality is not consistent with God's glory. Partiality is not consistent with God's glory. Let's look at verse 1. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Or, as we read in the NAS, The faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He is glorious, isn't he? And James is making a point here because he comes back to this same concept in verse 7 when he says, Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable or glorious name by which you are called? So he's, he's driving home this point of the worth of our Savior. He's helping us, really, to see other people in light of our view of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a terrible illustration. Bear with me for just a moment. 
But if, you, if you're like a really special bulb, a light bulb, you're a little special bulb, and you're a four water, right? And your neighbor, he's different than you. Maybe he's a three water or a five water. I know they don't make them like this. That's why I told you it's a terrible illustration. But let's just suppose you're a four water, you've got a neighbor who's a three water and a neighbor who's a five water, and then you come across this other guy, and he's like, he's like a... a a hundred watt bulb. Well, he's just really special. You've got all these bulbs around, right? And, and, and you're looking at them and you say, boy, that one's kind of dim. I'm kind of a little better than he is, a little worse than that guy. But this hundred water, he's, he's something special. When you hold that hundred water up to the sun, what do you got? <laughs> Not much. You know, the sun rises and everything around you is, is lit up, right? Yeah? Now, take that hundred watt bulb at night, pitch black, and bring it outside. It's great. You go from dark to, to light. But how much? Like how, how big of an area is, is lit up by that 100 water? Eh, not a lot. Like Just a little area. Think about the difference between any light bulb and the sun. And James, in a much more eloquent and better way, is trying to help us, rather than looking at each other in light of one another... He's helping us to look at one another in light of our glorious God. The honorable name. Discrimination is completely inconsistent with God's glory. It's not consistent to view the people of God, uh, the people that God has created with eyes of contempt or of disinterest. James will later mention this in another context. Take a look at James chapter 3. James chapter 3 and verse 7 and following. For every kind of beast and of bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with that same tongue, we curse people who are made in the image of, or in some versions, similitude of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. When we speak of people who are different than us, with a tongue that is less than favorable, even cursing, but yet we show up to praise God on the interwebs or at church, what's going on? This is the hypocrisy that the Bible is constantly condemning. The only one who can truly tame our tongue is God through His Spirit. Now, by the way, tongue also means our fingerboard, excuse me, our keyboard fingers, whether those be public comments or private. Partiality is not consistent with God's glory. Secondly, partiality is not consistent with God's gospel. Back in chapter 2 and verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? Verse 7 again, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name? Look, ready? By which you were called. 
He's making an emphasis here also of God's work in bringing us to Himself. What do we, we call that? The Gospel, right? God has saved us not by works done in righteousness by us, but according to His mercy He saved us. We were saved by the Gospel. And He's giving us that same flavor in this light. Partiality is not consistent with the Gospel. Hold your hand here because we're going to come right back, but I'd like you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for a moment. This is a, a passage we come to uh, somewhat regularly. If you're not familiar with it, I would suggest that you spend some time reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1 later today. But 1 Corinthians 1, look with me beginning in verse 26, right down through verse 31. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, nor uh, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to put to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in His presence. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so he's giving us, Paul gives us the same basic idea, but a little bit more um, clearly articulated, that those that have come to saving faith have come because of God's gracious working. This is, this is a happy thing to know that we're one that God has brought to salvation. And it wasn't because I'm super smart or super strong or super mighty or super wealthy, emotionally strong, intellectually strong. None of that stuff. God chose the weak. The weak. The weak. The unwise to put to shame the people that think they are no flesh not one of us will glory in ourselves in his presence let the one who boasts let him boast in the lord partiality is not consistent with the gospel head back to james 2 Thirdly, partiality is not consistent with God's law. We read verses 8-11 through 11 already. I will just remind you of verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing well. And then he goes on to say, but you, if, if you violate this in any way, then you have fallen short. Why does he call it the royal law? Well, I, I've made intimation... It's kingdom law. This is how God's kingdom invades this kingdom of darkness. It's completely different. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ came, he came and demonstrated God's character in the face of a world of wickedness. He's coming back again, and he's going to come back 
again, demonstrating God's character in a world of wickedness, except when he comes again, he's going to abolish the wickedness and establish a permanent and eternal righteousness on this place. We look forward to that, right? In the meantime, we are those inhabitants of his kingdom demonstrating his royal decree. And that royal decree is related to the law that Jesus answered the question about. How, what's the greatest law? We're not, I was going to have us turn there, but we're running out of time. In Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, you'll remember the, the lawyer comes up to Jesus. Tell us, what is the greatest law? And you'll remember Jesus' response. It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Love God. Love God. Love Him in the way you think and in the way you live. Love God with everything you are. Love Him with your resources. Love Him with your intellect. Love Him with your emotions. Love Him with your body. Love Him with all you are. Soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Partiality is a violation of these two laws. Inconsistent with God's law. Inconsistent. Fourthly and finally, partiality is not consistent with God's mercy. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We don't have enough time to fully develop this. But you have enough time to, to get a sense of it. Take a look at Matthew 18, please. Jesus tells a, a parable that we're familiar with. And so I don't interrupt the reading of the parable with illustration or discussion. Let me just try to lay it out beforehand and then read it so we can read it with this in mind. He's about to talk about two servants. Both have a debt. The second servant first. Second servant owes like a a half a year's wages. Anyone owe you a half a year's wages? That's a lot, right? Unless you don't make anything, in which case it's zero. But that, you're, that's the outlier. Um, second person owes the first servant a half a year's wages. So this is a big debt. First servant owes so much money, I don't even think we can quantify it, but it's millions and millions and millions of dollars, so much so that no matter what he did for the rest of his life, he would never, ever be able to pay it back, kind of like our national debt. That Try to get the sense. This enormous, unthinkable debt, and then this debt that none of us want someone owing us because it would be frustrating to us. Yes? Not most, most of us can't live our lives rightly if someone owed us half of our pay for the year. All right, verse 21. 
Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As, as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy, uh, excuse me, uh, yeah. mine says something that I don't like. Mine says 77 times. Some of you have a Bible that says 70 times 7, which I think is really more the, the idea. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven uh, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, 75 pounds of silver. It's <sighs> a lot. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him uh, to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Not happening, buddy. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, one-third of a year of, of pay, and seized him. He began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe! So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, Jesus uses an earthly story to illustrate a spiritual truth. My friends, the insurmountable debt that we paid, that was paid on our, in our stead by our Savior, like it, it's so immense it, it, it's, it's quite hard to fathom because we have our mortal minds, thankfully informed by the Scriptures and the Spirit of God, our mortal minds, don't, we don't comprehend the infinite, the eternal, and the holy to the degree that one day we will when we're in His presence. So it's hard for us to, to fathom the depth, the breadth of our debt to God. But we do understand that I don't deserve the forgiveness that I have been offered. And having, can you imagine finding out on that day all of that debt is gone? Can you imagine the, the weight that came off of that servant's shoulders. Can you imagine? He had been crippled prior to this. Just, it's just, I don't know what to do. I'll, I'll do anything. Just spare me from judgment. I'll pay everything I got. Please, be patient with me. And, and then the, the master says, it's okay. I got it. I'll take the debt on myself. It's over. 
Can you imagine? It's like, you're, you're like dancing, dancing, floating along. Ah, my debt is gone. I can go back home. I don't have to worry about this. This is glory. Isn't that way it should be? But yet, this guy reminded him just by his mere presence. Ah, he owes me a third's year wages. Hey, wait a second. Not only am I not in debt, now I'm going to be ahead. This is glorious. This is the best day ever. Give me my money. I, I don't have it. I don't, I don't have it. Be patient with me. Ring a bell? I'll pay you everything. That ring a bell? You just said it. You just said it with your own mouth. Nope. Not good enough. I wanted to be ahead to the chamber with you. This is what Jesus uses to illustrate the mercy that a believer has received with the mercy that a believer should distribute. This does not mean that distributing mercy would be an easy task because someone owing you $20,000 would not be an easy thing to just swallow. Someone having hurt you commensurate with a third of a year of pay, it's not easy to swallow. This is not like, oh, everyone that's ever been forgiven will always be so forgiven. That's not, that's not the point of the parable. The point is, our desire should be to view the debt that others owe us in light of the debt that we owed God. Our debt has been forgiven. Therefore, it should be my desire to forgive that debt that, that someone owes me. That doesn't mean that I won't struggle with it. You see, we take what God tells us and we try to flesh it out. And when we try to flesh it out is where we have the real problems. We don't flesh it out. We've got to spirit it out. The Spirit of God needs to take root in me. And I see my lack of mercy towards someone else. And I say, God, I'm struggling. I'm struggling to forgive them. They hurt me so deeply. They, they hurt me continuously. They hurt me in, in, the, in the most despicable ways. God, I'm really, it's a burden. I, I hate them. If you're bringing that to the Lord, and you say, God, root out of me my hatred. Root out of me my bitterness. Root out of me this terror of resentment. Take it away. It is then, my friend, it is then that the Spirit of God can root that bitterness, that envy, that frustration, that hate, that lack of forgiveness, can root it right out of you. It is of no challenge to God. The challenge is what? Here. So James ends that portion by saying, so speak and so act as those who have been called by the law that sets free, the law of liberty. Judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Don't be that one. Don't be ingracious, unmerciful, unforgiving of others because that is the character, that's the character of the natural mortal man. 
And the natural mortal man does not have any part in the kingdom of heaven. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Where is that mercy coming from? It comes from God. Paul was a channel of this mercy and he understood it. In 1 Timothy 1.15 and following, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Because I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Those who realize they are unworthy of the forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ desire to be channels of that same mercy and grace. It's not to say that we will do it perfectly at all times, for we are not at all times submitted to God's Spirit. You know, we live in troublesome times. We are not living in utopia nor paradise. And you know, we are not living in the kingdom. We're not living in the kingdom. We are representatives of the kingdom of God demonstrating the character of our king. And we want to call people to become a part of this infinitely better kingdom. We demonstrate in word and in deed the royal law, the kingdom law, the supreme law. To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we invite them, our neighbors, to turn from their current course and embrace the mercy and grace of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. Our words and our deeds must line up with this call to this better kingdom. Our words and our deeds must line up with this call to this better kingdom. The world needs rescue. And my charge to you and to me is that they would see that the gospel has rooted out discrimination within us and within us for the purpose of pointing them to a kingdom that we're all one in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We desire your work in us and through us. We pray for abundant fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.